Welcome. I'm Ross Young, and I'm here with G. Mark Hardy, and we are excited to share with you CISO Tradecraft. Just as a quick background in case you haven't heard our show before, CISO Tradecraft is a podcast designed to help folks in the information security community learn the techniques, methods, and technologies in the industry. The show focuses on helping mentor the next generation of cyber leaders take information security skills to an executive level. With that, I'm excited to present to you today's show. Welcome back for another episode of our CISO Tradecraft. I'm here with Ross Young. This is G. Mark Hardy. And today we want to talk about change. And more importantly, how do we do it in a way that is going to work both for our initiative, our organization, and ideally, ultimately for us as well? Yeah, this is a great topic to, to really focus on because if you can't drive change, you're never going to be an effective leader. And so what are we talking about here? We're talking about after the first 90 days when you come in as a CISO, you're going to have a vision and you need to be able to drive the change from the vision. So let's just take a modern example today which is a lot of organizations are focused on going to the cloud. Now, there's a lot of definitions of what that can be, and we're not going to drive that too much. But let's just say your focus and one of your key parts of your vision is going to the cloud securely. We need to really have all of the things in place that would really make a risk-based decision, identify gaps, controls, all the things you would want in good cloud security. So today we're going to talk about Cotter, and he has a fantastic principle known as eight accelerators for change. And it's, it's fantastic. We're going to talk about creating a sense of urgency, building a guiding coalition, forming a strategic vision and initiatives, enlisting a volunteer army, enabling action to remove barriers, generating short-term wins, and sustaining acceleration. And this allows the final step of instituting change. So it's a fantastic model, and we're not going to go through every little, piece, every little piece of it, but we're going to give you enough nuggets of information that you'll be able to create those big opportunities for change in your organization. Yeah, so let's go, let's go back to kind of um, John Cotter and kind of what got this all kicking off. Okay, so back in the Harvard Business Review in May, June of 1995, he had published an article called Leading Change, Why Transformation Efforts Fail. And he really pointed out about eight major reasons why efforts to create change didn't work. Well, got a lot of resonance on that. People like, I can recognize this. I can recognize this. And well, you can't really hire a consultant to come in here and say, hey, I can do eight things wrong for you. But you can bring in somebody to say, I can show you how to do eight things correctly. And so what that did is that evolved into an eight-step change model which allows him then to communicate the concepts of leading change. And so when we talk about change, and as they say, this is not about cloud computing, it could be just about anything you like, uh, but one of the things we often find out is that a lot of them fail. A lot of efforts to go ahead and uh, change organizations uh, do not succeed. We have very skilled people, people who are graduated from the top business schools with years and years of experience, and they drive companies off a cliff. Um, you know, we, we think about whatever happened to things like Blackberry or Nokia or anybody like that. They're not picking on them or Xerox or their park center. 
But for, at our level, where we probably don't have the benefit of 20 years of hands-on executive experience with a top-tier B-school uh, degree, what can we do? How do we learn, if you will, from others' mistakes and do it right the first time? Yeah, I, I think this is really good. You know, traditionally in the cyber industry, you see really smart people. But the difference between the smart people who are at the, let's say, first line levels of management versus the executives, hopefully, is their ability to create mission impact, to create that change. So what do you think the sense of urgency has to do with starting this whole thing off? Well, there, I think that's a great point, is that if, if we go back and we look at something like uh, Dr. Stephen Covey, where he talks about you know, being effective at work, he has a little quadrant that we're not going to talk about now, but you know, it might actually be a good talk later, where you look at um, urgency versus importance. And when something is both urgent and important, it's in quadrant one. When it's not yet urgent, but uh, important, it's a quadrant two. Urgent, not important, three, not urgent, not important, four. And he, and he talks about what fits into things. And, and he says most organizations, if they're going to be successful, want to spend an awful lot of time in the not urgent but important quadrant. What does that mean? Planning, uh, doing things in advance, not like your kid who comes in on a Monday morning at breakfast and said, Mom, my science project is due. He says, when? Today as compared to <laughs> you've got a month to work on it and you do it a little bit. So it's actually got knocked out 10 days in advance and then you just tweak it, tweak it, tweak it. And so from that perspective, we're, we're counseled by Dr. Covey to really try to avoid this urgency. Urgency in a way should be reserved for, well, emergencies, things that come up and, and create a crisis. Because if you're constantly firefighting, you don't have a chance to do the longer term planning. Now here, what Cotter is doing is he's almost kind of going in the opposite direction. What he's saying is that perhaps that's fine for steady state, but if you want to create change, you cannot really do it without creating the sense of urgency. So what he's saying is using Covey's model, you got to move into quadrant one. You got to get people into a little bit of a, I don't know if a panic is the right world, but you got to get them worked up. And so the concept of a sense of urgency says that given a choice of this activity versus a series of other activities, you're going to pick this one. And so that's where Cotter says that we kick off is we create this, this sense of urgency, get people going and things such as that. And uh, so, I mean, how much effort really do we need here at this sense of urgency? Do we just declare urgent, 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 like a fire drill, or is there a whole lot of work that's involved here? Well, I think this is the, the big piece of where CISOs often get this wrong, right? If we're using fear, uncertainty, and doubt to drive the urgency, we might be doing it wrong. But if we're tying back to what are the key business drivers for the organization, we want to do a digital transformation and really create a mobile app experience that makes the world a better place, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a really good thing to focus on. And now, how are we going to drive security into the mobile app experience, right? And, and driving that so that we're aligning with the business interests. And guess what? They're already set up to go because it's urgent for them to drive more business revenue, right? So I think that is, is part of the key of... Where do you see 
the industry shifting within your organization? And how can you ride the coattails of that to put security into the things that are most important to the organization? Another place too, is if you see some of the risks really changing. So for example, ransomware is a big thing right now for a lot of companies. Well, there's probably a sense of urgency of how do we not become the next company that experiences ransomware and has to cough up X amount of millions of dollars? Well, here's something we need to change in the organization because of these things. And here's how it really helps the business of revenue protection. Yeah, one of the things that Cotter talks about is that for change to be successful, about three quarters of a management team really has to be convinced that the current status quo is not acceptable. So when you talk about something like ransomware, although some people are tangentially aware of it, if they're not directly experienced with it, then that factor of denial tends to take over. Oh, it can't happen to us, can't happen to me, can't happen to my department. Of course, still it does. And then they're looking for somebody to blame. And so what that suggests then that for us in the security area of the business, we're rarely in a position of direct supervisory control over the people who decide what happens. Again, as I think I had mentioned before, I don't think I've ever seen somebody wearing a CEO and a CISO hat at the same time. That said, what it means is that our strategies for getting people to do things have to rely on influence. We've talked about that before, uh, where we want to go ahead and get people to do things, not because we're ordering them to, but because we want to. So now what Cotter suggests then is uh, a couple of things. We've got to move out of quadrant two into quadrant one, create the sense of urgency. We also have to activate um, about three quarters of the leadership of an organization around what our initiative is. Doesn't mean we have to get every last employee to want to go ahead and do multi-factor authentication, move to the cloud, fill in the blank for your security initiative. But if you don't get that top level support, the suggestion is you have a very, very bumpy ride, a very difficult way to go uphill. So based upon that, Ross, and what do you think the next step would have to be once you've been able to go ahead and tie the goal that you have into, into some sort of opportunity that a large number of influential people in the organization say, yeah, I want that, we need that, or we got to avoid this. So after we've sold this idea that it's really urgent, we need to build a guiding coalition, if you will. Mm-hmm. We need to talk to the people who are the decision makers who are the people who people are going to listen to in the organization. And it may not be just by position of power. It may be by influence, by role, and just well-liked and respected individuals that are the linchpin of your organization. So as we start to talk to them, then we're going to be able to craft our idea in a way that more people are going to be receptive to, as well as find the right support that we need to transform the organization. Now, as you, as you mentioned that about creating this guiding coalition and getting the right people together, um, what I think we want to extend our thinking, and we're talking about change here, and so it's not going to be the usual suspects. In addition to looking for the established leaders in our organization, a couple of things uh, might come out of this. Number one is, is that 
we might be able to expand our thinking and look for, if you will, more diversity. Now, I'm not talking about diversity from the HR department. I'm talking about diversity of thought, diversity of opinion. How do we get things done? Different people from different backgrounds bring different approaches toward how to solve problems. Not all of them are correct, but at least they're on the table. And so that suggests moving outside of your comfort zone from, as I said, the usual suspects of the IT security team or people from IT who say, yeah, we like security or the one or two executives to get people to uh, kind of buy in. The other thing also is we want to try to remove some of the future obstacles by identifying key stakeholders. And stakeholders are individuals that have a vested interest in what you're doing. Typically, a stakeholder would be someone who is either funding the initiative, providing the work effort, or benefiting directly from the work product. But one of the strategies that we can do if we understand organizational politics effectively is to create stakeholders, powerful people who otherwise not, might not be directly affected by our change initiative, but we can convince them that this is a great thing to do. Maybe make them sort of an informal sponsor. Why? Because when you encounter, you're going to get encounter opposition to change. It's human nature. People kind of resist change. You've got that political top cover now. We've been able to go ahead and do a little bit better job of inoculating ourselves from that. So once we've gone ahead and we've done our, our first couple steps, we've created the sense of urgency. We've got a guiding coalition. We've got some diverse members in there, stakeholders, leaders. Uh, what's next? What do we do? Well, before we go to the next step, I just want to talk about that. How do we get those initial people in? The, the one trick I have learned in my career is typically the best time to do this is on a one-on-one -on -one approach. If you're in a giant meeting and everybody is really focused on something, you're going to have naysayers in the room. But if mm -hmm. you had met with those initial people one-on-one -on -one and took them out for lunch and say, hey, I've been thinking about this idea and, and I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on this and how could we make this a success? Now you're going to get that person's buy-in and, and now you're going to build a really good coalition as up front. And you do that to four or five people. And then afterwards you have that meeting and you've already prepped the room for success. So do a little bit of homework before you just come in with a coalition and blindly, you know, assault everybody with your new idea, if you will. I, I love that. And in fact, it's, it is quite true because I've seen this before where in some cases, some people will object in a group only to validate their own self of sense of self-importance. They may not really care, but they want to be heard. They want everybody to hear them. They want to look like they're standing out. And I, I could tell you stories from you know, years and years of public speaking, how they're, you get warned about that. This one in the audience is going to screw with you. Uh, but as you exactly what you had said, talking to them in advance, uh, the, the heckler. Um, I was speaking up in Toronto, a huge audience, and the guy apologized in advance. I went up to the guy before he started, says, look, someone told me you're one of the smartest guys in the room. What I really like you to do is give me some feedback on my presentation. When I'm done talking, let's sit down and I want to see what you got to say about it. Well, the whole talk went, he said, not a peep. The, the sponsor, the guy was amazed, like, what happened? What did you say to this guy? Well, I went up to him afterwards. It was genuine. He says, no, I loved everything you said. He needed to be validated. He just needed someone to say, you're important. And so what we have to do here, in addition to just the organizational uh, material, is kind of, and we'll, we'll get into it a little bit more with regard to when we talk about the four principles, 
the concept of a head versus a heart, you got to appeal to people's emotions at some point. And uh, that can work well for you if you understand how to do that. And I'm not talking about manipulating people, it's validating them. So you kind of mentioned the third step, which is, you know, creating or forming a strategic vision and initiatives, right? What are the things we, we need to have in these areas so that we win the hearts and minds? You know, you see people like Simon Sinek, who's a fantastic speaker, and he tells people with, start with the why, right, before you go into the what. And, and that kind of helps win some of the values because it appeals to people with the, don't you want to be part of this kind of thing? What do you think, G. Mark? Is there other things to do when we focus on our vision of change? Yeah, I think what we want to make sure is that vision is going to give us a cohesion relative to what it is we want to get done. A big error that you could make is to come out with, oh, look, here are the 25 different things or the 50 things we need to do. Well, unless they're aligned toward a, a strategic vision, it's going to tend to dilute people's interests and attention. They might find a little rat hole to run down. And they said, I like this project. And then there they go. What a vision does is it clarifies our sense of purpose. It says the direction we need to go to. It's also wonderful for individuals who get easily distracted because if they say, hey, let's go do this, let's go do this, then you can say, wait a minute, our vision is to accomplish such and such. How does that move us toward our vision? And if it doesn't, it's kind of a way to say, okay, it's a valid thing, but it's not part of this project. Let's set that aside and come back to it. So it allows us then to uh, help people uh, get them going. We can motivate them. We can we coordinate them in the right direction. But the other thing also that we might want to take a look at is how does this vision relate to ultimately what do we value as an organization? If I'm saying, well, my vision is, well, we have to have multi-factor authentication for cloud access so we can be uber cool. Yeah, that vision isn't going to take place. But if the, the corporate values is, is that we provide you know, you know, great benefit to our customer base. We provide a better working environment for people, whatever they happen to be. And we can tie our vision for a change into those value systems because value systems kind of pre-exist. It's, uh, it's part of the organizational culture. And so although we're trying to change behavior, we're trying to do it in a way that it can resonate with people where they're not going to object saying, I don't get this and I don't want this because it goes against everything I believe. Rather, what the vision is, is it's creating us an opportunity to, in a nice little tight um, capsule, say, here's what we're doing and why. And it gives us a sense of where we want to go from there. And I would say a great vision drives direction. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it's just a starting point of where you want to get to. And then you're going to have, let's say, three, four different options of how to get there, right? And when you look at those options, you may disagree in the room to say, I think this is a better option. And somebody else is, well, I, I like the other one. But if we take both options and tie them back to the vision of which one is more likely to implement this vision, mm -hmm. which one, if we did, would maybe not get us there. If we did this fully, how could it go wrong, right? And tying those things back to the vision allows us to build the consensus where we both agree and it's you, me, win, win, 
right? So as we focus together on having that vision, it's really the crux for the shared agreement for how we make decisions going forward. Yeah, and I think that vision statement becomes key that we don't wanna just kind of scribble something down the back of the envelope, be done with it and off we go. That takes refinement, that takes kind of an iterative approach until we get it just right. Because if your vision does what it's supposed to do, which is inspire others, I wanna be part of this, this is something that is meaningful to me, uh, then, then that works out quite well. Which of course suggests that once you've created this great strategic vision, um, we need to communicate that. We need to get people on board. What, what, how do we do that? What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, there's two real approaches to communication. One is a top-down approach where it starts with the senior leaders telling their managers underneath them to cascade the message, right? Mm -hmm. I, this is what we're going to do to change. I need your help. Let's get everybody body, bought into it and make sure everybody understands what's important to the company. Then there's the bottom-up approach, which is, okay, it's really going to work at the worker bee level. You guys are the ones who change the, the syntax and type things into the computers and make all the code changes. So here's what I need you to do on the lower side, which is how do we build automation in to make these things happen? Or, you know, what are you going to do to, to drive this and have metrics that can come up and we can measure your progress up top? So there, there's two real approaches uh, and it, it really just depends on which is more effective for your organization. You probably need both, but some organizations really support the chain of command like the military. Other places, it's just very different from a modern IT culture to have that happen. So I, I, it's just largely dependent on the organization. And what's interesting is this, is you look at John Cotter's writing, is that his effort about leading change, which he really kind of pioneered and kind of put in his book in 1996, he's kind of updated that as recently as 2014 to accelerate instead of you know, a different spin on a lot of these different eight process steps. And some of the differences were kind of it's minor semantics, but this is the first one on step four that I thought was really kind of a, a, a significant change from what was communicate the vision to now go ahead and enlist a volunteer army, all right? And what he's suggesting is that with acceleration that you're only going to get large scale change if a significant number of people come on board. Now, I would argue that there's a cause and effect here, right? Because if I fail to communicate my vision, I can't recruit an army and I can't get people on board. But if I communicate effectively, if I can go ahead and get that word out and let people know what is going on, because what he finds out is that um, in his original Harvard Business Review paper, he talks about biggest problem is under communicating the vision by a factor of 10. You got to try 10 times harder than you normally would. Get people on board. But here's the other cool thing. You might get people who emerge as potential influencers and leaders that you never ever expected to because without creating this volunteer army, you might never have asked them for it. Uh, and, and so a, a couple of things, if you will, come out of that. One is you get you know, almost the, the Lech Valenza um, effect that 
events create great people or all of a sudden this change opportunity brought a welder out of a Gdansk shipyard ultimately to become this nation's president. Um, I don't know if we're going to be having that type of influence in the cybersecurity world. But the point is, is that some of the people that could help a lot may not be in formal positions that recognize uh, their uh, change. So, for example, in your experience, uh, how did you get a volunteer army together for DevOps? So I think you're going to find in every organization that you ever go to, the number of cyber people under a CISO is maybe one to 50 of the number of developers in the organization. So my ability to, let's say, go and police everybody's code to make sure they had vulnerabilities is, is, is non-existent. I just don't have enough people to do that. So I need to have what are known as evangelists and security champions from the developer community who can help with that. And what we saw is a couple of ways to do this. The first is give free training to your developers, right? If you can teach them how to do things and offer that for free at convenient times and locations for the developers, now you can start to have them be your spokesman within their own developer groups. And that really does a lot to promote good security. We also saw things like threat modeling. How do we go to the developers to tell them, hey, somebody could target your application and here's what you need to think about and you teach things like the stride model and others. Well, when we start to change their mindset a little bit of what we want them to think about, now they're thinking like security and they're our volunteer army. Mm -hmm. Another example, which is just really good and we're seeing this everywhere is on phishing. So historically, we've had people do phishing exercises where we've hammered people to say, oh, you click the button or the link and you shouldn't have done that. Well, most organizations are pivoting to a more positive model, which is what percent of my organization actually reported the fish to security so that we could actually stop it from the other people who haven't read that email just yet. So now we're enlisting a volunteer army of developers of users across our organization and creating partnerships to really transform security when we don't always have the the number of resources. You know, in a way that almost reminds me of the story of Tom Sawyer and painting the fence in that, uh, you know, he was given a task that he didn't want to do. Well, presumably we got different circumstances here, but what he did is he made it cool. It's like, hey, it's not every day you get to whitewash a fence. Well, you know, I don't know if I want to let you do that or not. Maybe they, I mean, it's kind of a, a, a nice little lesson in reverse psychology. But what we're finding, though, from that same model, though, is that you get people engaged. They want to become part of it because ultimately you reach um, what uh, Gladwell talked about as a tipping point in an organization where you reach some critical mass of people and then all of a sudden it starts to roll forward. And so ultimately, our goal is to try to get it, you know, push it, pip it, tip it, and then let the momentum carry forward. So at this point in time, Ross, we've got a, a sense of urgency, a sense of vision. Uh, we've got some senior executive support. We've been getting people excited about it and getting them going. But still, sometimes things just don't keep going correctly. 
what is it that causes things to stop at this point? And then how do we ensure that this momentum keeps going? Well, right now we're coming to the stage of how do we remove obstacles and spot barriers that are causing problems in our organization? Now, sometimes these are the folks who kind of give this approach of, well, we tried this before, but it didn't really work. Well, okay, maybe things have changed a little bit and it's worth trying again. So it's, it's understanding, are these people barriers? Are these process barriers? Or are these technology barriers to implement things in our organization? And I, I love the example of Terry Tate, office linebacker. <laughs> and if you've never seen it, it's a fantastic commercial. I think it's by Reebok. And what they do is they have this massive NFL you know, lineman who basically goes and sacks people in the office telling them, you know, you forgot to do this thing that they should have done. And I use that example in my organization every week. And I say, what are the things that you need help with that if I were to remove out of your way would really help you? Mm -hmm. And giving that little five minute time to speak up to each one of my direct employees really provides me insight to knowing where they struggle and where I can help improve the organization and create change that we need to have. And in the same opportunities exist in strategic projects as well, taking the one-on-one times to talk to our security champions to say, Hey, how are things going? We gave you this really important thing to help, you know, do it are you seeing any challenges right now? And what can we do to make your life easier? Yeah, I think what, so there's really two steps here in in this particular step. It's number one, identifying what these potential obstacles are, and then being able to go ahead and do something about it. And so for a lot of organizations, the larger you are, the more likely this is to be a problem is though, the bureaucracy. Um, you know, the first law of a bureaucracy is that it grows. The second rule of bureaucracy is it must never die. And so as a result, it sort of feeds on itself and gets bigger and bigger, which creates the ossification, if you will, of process. Everything turns to stone. It moves very, very slowly. And as a result, change becomes almost anathema to the whole concept of I'm in a nice little comfortable bureaucratic spot and I'm good and I'll be able to retire here someday. And so that bureaucracy, that complacency, I think tends to be one of the biggest potential obstacles, not for a fast running unicorn startup, okay? That's probably the last thing they gotta worry about. And they're probably in fact, much more effective at change because that complacency that bureaucracy hasn't kind of settled in yet. And for those of us who've been part of a growing organization, we watch companies start out and we work insane, crazy hours as kind of a single or double digit employee number. And then they get up into hundreds and maybe thousands of people. All of a sudden, you got to have all these policies, these procedures, et cetera. It gets harder and harder. And then what happens is we have to be able to find ways to break that. And so one of the things that could come out of that is if there are people resisting change, I go back, what is it? Why are they resisting it? Is it just because they are afraid of it? They see that their, their job is going to be endangered um, or they feel that they're going to lose their sense of importance and power. Um, being able to diagnose that and all of a sudden here we are kind of putting on yet another hat 
in the security world that deals with people to say, what would allow us to remove a particular obstacle for you? What is it that um, concerns if you had to go ahead and accomplish this? What would you want to see come out of the result? Well, I don't want to lose my staff. I don't want to lose my team. I'm, I'm a, I've been here for 28 years and I've got such and such a title. Okay, great. What if it didn't affect your title and your people were able to learn and do more important or different tasking? In fact, they might even be more influential. That would be a step up for you, wouldn't it? And again, it's a little bit a matter of trying to go through and, uh, and figure these things out. But yeah, that uh, as you enlist the army and then remove barriers, some of those barriers are going to be people, not process. And it's important that we be able to understand how to communicate that. So great, we've, we've kind of cleared a path. We got like this little narrow path to potential success going. How do we make sure that we don't fall off the path? So we need to really document the short-term wins and, and we have to create those, right? And as we do that, there's a couple of things I found to be really helpful for me. One is have some type of metric that shows progress. Right. If you're going to to take that earlier example of reporting Spearfish as a, a really good way to help secure our organization, you know, maybe your goal is we're going to get to 30% and you're at 5%. Well, mm -hmm. hey, if we got to 10% over a quarter, that's really, really good. And the other thing I like to do when I tell effective win stories is pull out an example that is very specific. Here's an example of a spearfish that was sent to 50 executives in our corporation. And guess what? This one person right here spotted the fish within the first two minutes of that email coming out and reporting it. And when that happened, that allowed us to block this email from the other 49 people who hadn't opened that, that email. And this, this saved us from malware coming into our company. Right. So using an effective story and, and socializing this of, hey, this isn't just some idea. This is actually making change and, and reducing risk within our company and protecting is, is an effective win. And then you can start to get more people drive it and socialize it and evangelize it. And you have better wins going forward and you can do harder wins that may take more time and money and larger staff to do it. And you can show them, hey, we're snowballing, we're getting little wins to make medium wins, to make large wins, and now we're ready for the really big win. And let's keep that in the context of our first step, which is a sense of urgency. One of the things that we wanna do is as we generate these short-term wins, there's a reason for that. And it has to do with the fact that most change takes a while and it's really difficult once you get people excited, hey, we're going on a 20-mile march. Yay, okay, great, that sounds great. Well, once you start slogging, the rain's hit, and you get some mud, and then your, your ankle twists. You start to lose excitement very quickly, and all of a sudden, you've, you've lost that, that sense of urgency. So by being able to pick the right short-term wins, we can keep that sense of urgency up. Hey, look, guys, look what we just did. Isn't this awesome? Come on, let's try to get another one of these things. Oh, okay, fine. Yeah, let me go. And all of a sudden, you're almost in a cheerleader role. Uh, these these short-term wins are validating what you're doing. The effective wins are validating to your team that 
this vision is working. We're making progress toward it. We can't stop now. Don't lose this, this sense of, of urgency, if you will, because that's going to be important, uh, which suggests that as we are able to do so, we kind of almost move into the, the next step here in terms of his model. What do you th- what's, what's your thoughts there? Exactly. So the next step is sustained acceleration, or how do we continue to build on the changes that we've implemented? And the real piece that I would say is security tends to be cumulative, right? We're going to require security and software. Well, we start with static application analysis. Then we notice, oh, wait, we need to make sure the open source libraries are patched. And now we need software composition analysis. Oh, wait, we have web application. So now we got to do web scanning and, and the list keeps going and you keep adding more and more and more. And, and the hard thing that you need to do is knowing what went well, what went wrong, and where do we want to retire some things that are preventing us from having even more acceleration? Have you, have you ever seen organizations that just don't turn anything off and everything's a priority, which really means nothing's a priority? Yeah, well, again, there you're, now you're back into quadrant one. You're firefighting, you know. And uh, so, quick little side story. I remember when I was as a naval officer, I had responsibility for for leadership training. And one of the things we looked at was where do effective organizations operate? And we determined that if you could be in the quadrant two, where things you're working on the important but not yet urgent. And we said, okay, great. Maybe five to ten percent of your activity might be quadrant one because stuff happens. Well, then we look at the Pentagon, 85% of activities are going to be there. Well, it's the nature of the business in that particular case is that you don't know when there's going to be the next tsunami or earthquake or when some political upheaval takes place or some skirmish occurs that, you know, they're not going to brief you in advance. Most of us don't have to worry about that in the security world. But I think instead of the issue of everything becoming important because there's no prioritization, the danger perhaps for us here as an agent of change may be declaring victory a little bit too soon. In fact, that's what Cotter talked about in his original paper. He says that if you say, hey, you know, we're coming along, we're doing great, look at all the progress we've made. Yeah, guys, we won, we're over the hill, top of the hill. It's just a matter of coasting down to the end. And that's a recipe for uh, falling and failing because what happens is, is that if you have a premature victory celebration, those who are part of this change who've been pushing hard are going, yay, yay, yay. But guess what? The people who have been resisting that change, either actively or passively, are going to go, yay, yay, yay. What? Look, we're there. We're done. Hey, you guys can disband now. This is awesome. You've accomplished it. And they could potentially lull your agents of change into a sense of complacency again by saying that you've won they win. And so we want to continue to build on that change. We want to sustain that acceleration. We want to avoid the premature sense of that, hey, we are done. And as a result, there's one thing really remaining that has to take place to go ahead and lock that into an organization. We need to anchor the changes in corporate culture and make Mm -hmm. it stick. Right. And Cotter talks about there's really three things of you have a good change process, you leverage principles and the network, and you really tie that in to organizational processes that become deeply rooted. Right. So it's not just 
hey, we're going to tell people and it's all lip service. It's something that is, you know, becomes more required. So take the example of uh, software security Mm -hmm. and we're trying to make developers really do something. Well, at the beginning, you may have some type of a certification process and anybody who does this, we're going to give them some some uh, bonuses or awards and allow them to be recognized. And then as we start getting, you know, 25 to 50% of the developers doing it, well, now this is going to become something that the whole organization uses for promotion to the next level. Okay. You want to go from a junior engineer to a senior engineer, show me the certification. And then once we get to about the 90, uh, 75 to 90% of the organization having the certification, well, now it's, it's required. If you're mm-hmm. in this job, you have three months to get certified. And so that kind of, let's say, raising the bar now makes it built in to become deeply rooted in the culture and make it stick so that everybody becomes certified and trained in, in these practices you're trying to adopt. Right. So what we're basically saying is a couple of things is that, first of all, to make sure it locks into the culture is that you want to show people that their successes are as a result of going through this change behavior. Because if people have to kind of guess, they might misconnect. They might say, hey, ever since I started getting up at uh, half an hour earlier, I'm much more successful at work. Uh, And that's the wrong message. And so we have to, number one, drive through and kind of reinforce that we're doing better because of this. Hey, look, the number of fishes went down, the number of you know, our risk from ransomware is going down. Look, with the uh, move to the cloud, multi-factor authentication, et cetera, is to the point where we don't have to worry about somebody hacking our servers. We don't have to worry about somebody holding us for hostage or ransom. We can't, you don't even worry about password guessing because if you get a little alert on your phone saying, hey, you know, you're log on attempt, you want to prove it? And you're sitting there at the dinner table, it's like, eh, something's up. So first of all, show people that the change that we've instituted is responsible for their success. And then the second thing is we're going to go all the way back to remember those key executives that we brought in when we said we wanted to go ahead and get to that guiding coalition. We wanted to identify those leaders, the stakeholders, come up with a diverse background. Those people need to remain on board. We want to make sure that their behavior reinforces the talk that they're not saying, well, you know, I'm kind of busy. And so I don't want to deal with all this extra security. So just give me a shortcut or just let me deal with this, et cetera. That disconnect at the top very rapidly becomes visible to folks throughout the organization and can really cause things to unravel. Um, But if we're able to successful that, if we can anchor that change into the culture, then we've done a couple of things. Our, Our change will tend to be a lot more likely to stick. It's going to be part of our regular behavior because essentially culture is the expectation of members of a group of each other. I expect you to do certain things in certain professional cultures. I expect different things in different areas. So this becomes kind of a mutual expectation. So many culture is causing reinforcing behavior. So we're trying to inject it into new reinforcing behavior. The other thing, you want to recognize here is in having gone through all this process, you've actually built a new network. You've built a network of executives who believe in cybersecurity. You've built a network of influencers who have embraced your vision and helped help you clear some of these obstacles. 
you build a network of, if you will, the rank and file employees who are believing that their better situation is due to the change that you have instituted. Hey, my system never goes down anymore. Uh, we don't have a budget cut or we didn't lose bonuses because, well, we had to pay ransom or something like that. All those things allow you then to potentially be more successful in the future because you're going to be viewed as a winner. You were able to pioneer a change, articulate it in a way by creating that sense of urgency, by, by getting people on board, by having that vision that people bought into, communicating that effectively, getting people on board, if you will, removing the barriers, those little short-term wins to reinforce the fact that you're on the right step, sustain that acceleration, we're building on that, and then lock in that change. So from that perspective, we, we've seen a lot of these uh, process. Are there any, any principles that are really involved then as we look at that? And this is suggests that we're maybe doing something a little bit differently with regard to change principles. Well, as we look at it, there's a, a couple that we need to really pull out here. We talked about winning the hearts and minds of folks, that people aren't just inspired by logic, but they want to feel heard. They want to understand the why. And if you tailor that, that can really help. The second is we need to understand the have to versus the want to, right? If everybody feels like, eh, this is just a, a could, but not a, a need, then that's really important to, to driving the adoption. And we need to get the bought in from leadership and management. They're the people who manage the people and send things on. And then there are the people that actually drive the change. So which one are we focused on? Is it the influencers or is it just the people that are going to, eh, sure, I'll do it, but don't really get around to it. And lastly, we need to think about the few versus the many, right? Sometimes when we're driving change, it's really good for most people but sometimes it's really bad for certain parts of the organization. And we talked about, hey, we're going to lay some people off. Well, those people are going to fight you, right? And, and they don't want to be laid off. So how do we understand those two commitments so that when we drive change, we help the resentment and the, the fighting not occur because we've actually given them new opportunities where people can shift and we're not firing them we're moving them to other parts of the organization that could leverage their experiences. So, so oh, go ahead. I was going to say, to kind of recap there, is what we're looking at the principles, it's called leadership and management. From a leadership perspective, those are attributes that we contribute to leaders, vision, action, innovation. And so, although they talk about managing change uh, in some documents, Cotter's original paper and his book talks about leading change. So we want to focus on leading people. As Grace Hopper has said, you manage things, you lead people. Uh, the select few versus the diverse many, um, by working with not the usual suspects, but new people, we might uncover new leaders, people that we had not yet known about before. They've been kind of waiting for an opportunity to show what they could do. And this change opportunity became a catalyst for them. The head versus the heart, we're really inspiring meaning, going for the emotional connection. People don't change because of logic. 
Okay, we change because of emotion, because otherwise, if we change because of logic, we would be working out every day, we'd be eating just all the right foods, we'd have no bad habits, we'd be saving our money effectively in the planning. And as we know, we kind of sort of get to that, but we don't do it every time. And then the last one, the have to versus the want to. The want to says what? That we have created a desire in people to say, I really want to be part of this. Their feelings are engaged because they now embrace the change as being something that they see themselves as a part of. They identify that. And then as it works its way into the culture, it then becomes something that everybody can say, wow, this is awesome. This is great. I want to be part of it. So great summary there in terms of what you talked about there from these, these principles. So I think this is a great time to, to wrap it up here. Each one of you in your work opportunities is going to have the big opportunity for change. Use these principles to make the change happen. Focus on driving the actions and being that person that can inspire other people with your CISO tradecraft. And we also want to highlight another piece. We just added a new thing on our website, CISOTradeCraft.com, where users can submit comments, questions, or concerns. So if there's something you would like us to talk about for another upcoming show, put it in the, in the comment and we'll consider it. We will probably even do it and we'll put your name around it. And it can be a good opportunity where you can learn and where we can share some guidance with others. So Thank you very much for attending our show and listening to this podcast. Please subscribe as we have new episodes coming every Friday for you. Thank you, everybody. And I uh, hope to be talking to you again soon.